This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. We will continue this morning, uh, by God's grace, to walk through the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 7. We are going to attempt today to take the entire chapter all together, all 28 verses. This is one of those passages which is better understood as a whole, and so I'll get there in just a minute. But before I do that, I, I want to take just a moment and answer a question that I get asked a lot. Uh, I have been your pastor for about three and a half years, and this is the one question I've received more than any other question, and I get it consistently, and given the fact that it's July 4th, I know I'm going to get it again, so I thought it would just be helpful for me to go ahead and answer why is it that we don't sing patriotic songs on Sunday morning? Now, I want to answer this for a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, it's just helpful for you to hear my heart. I think uh, the other reason I need to answer is because we live in the day of conspiracy theories, and I don't want you to think I'm a communist or something, okay? Uh, this has nothing to do with me being patriotic. Uh, I was raised in an extremely patriotic family. Those things were drilled into me consistently. Um, I stand for the Star Spangled Banner. I put my hand on my heart. I get frustrated when others don't. I love this nation. I'm so thankful for what God has done here. I was just telling somebody uh, the other day that if you really want to get me teary-eyed, you take me to that laser show at Stone Mountain right when Elvis begins to sing uh, the battle hymn of the Republic. That gets me every time. That's about as American as it gets right there. I love that. Matter of fact, I even wanted you to see a picture. This is what I'm wearing, actually, to my 4th of July party tonight. I think I've got a picture, so. You can please take that down. I'd appreciate that. I thought about wearing that this morning. I, matter of fact, someone said if I did, I probably would have got a standing ovation. But listen, it has nothing to do with that. I, I'm deeply grateful, and, and as we just talked about, just continue to want to honor the sacrifices that have made that we can do this. This is a big deal. When 70% of the world's population can't do this, this is a big deal. There, there's one simple reason, okay? And that is because there are 168 hours in the week. And I get one with you. I get one. One hour. And in that hour, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get you to stop for a minute thinking about all of the things you've been inundated with. No generation has ever gotten more consistent information than this one. You are bombarded with information, political information, and all the news of what's going on. And you've got family stuff and work stuff, and you've got children stuff, and you've got all kinds of drama. So what I'm trying to do is for one hour a week to get us in here and to get you to not think about anything else but Jesus Christ. That's it. I'm not saying that we can't sing a, political, I mean, a, a patriotic song and continue to do that. That's fine. There's a time for that. It's just my conviction on Sunday morning is I've got an hour with you. That's it. And I, I am jealous of this hour. One of the reasons uh, uh, we don't go out to lunch with anybody on Sunday afternoon is because I'm exhausted when I get done here. This is absolute warfare. I don't sleep well on Saturday night. I get up early on Sunday morning. I am battling here. I literally get done every Sunday and feel like I've just been to war. I'm just completely depleted and exhausted because this is massive spiritual warfare because we're fighting for your attention. And all I wanna do is make sure that when you leave this place, 
You just love Jesus and you're thinking about Jesus. I just want every moment to just bring our attention from the first song to the last to just bring your affection to Jesus. And a part of our time here is to fill your minds with truth. And there's many parts of this to build community. But a big part of Sunday morning is just a pep rally for Jesus. Like that's how I view this. We're just here to get you fired up about Jesus. And I don't want anything to distract from that. So that's just a personal conviction. I know that's maybe disappointing to some of you, but I just wanted you to know why. It's no other reason than that. I'm just really jealous for this hour. And I want to make sure you leave here from beginning to end just being consumed, maybe the only hour of the week consumed with Jesus Christ. And uh, I think Hebrews 7 is going to help us with that this morning. Amen. Pope Benedict who was the head of the Catholic Church from 2005 to 2013, wrote a little book called The Priest, A Bridge to God. The Priest, A Bridge to God. He wrote it as not only a manual for priests and an encouragement for priests, but as a way to motivate more men to go into the priesthood. He says in that book, the world needs priests today, tomorrow and always until the end of time. Now, Pope Benedict was right on a few things. He was right on the fact that we need a priest today, tomorrow, and always. He was right that we need someone to confess to and to help us and to save us. He was right in his title, that a priest is a bridge to God. That's why a priest exists. Maybe the most common understanding of the gospel and picture of the gospel is the bridge illustration. You've probably seen this where, where God is over here and mankind is over here and there is this massive chasm in between them because as Isaiah 59.2 says, your sins have separated you from God. And so God is here and you are here and you are unable to get to the other side where is everything that you need and the way in which God mediates between people and himself has always been a, a priest. And you read through the Old Testament and you find all of these priests who existed as mediators to get people to God because God's heart has always been to bring people to himself. Priests really are a bridge. They are a mediator between man and God. And Pope Benedict was right on all of that. He was just wrong on one major thing. We don't need priests, we need a priest. We only need one priest and his name is Jesus Christ. First Timothy 2.5 says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. There is only one person that can bridge the gap and give us access to God and it is Jesus. Have you ever noticed or found it curious that when you read through the Old Testament, there's all these new priests, every generation new priests because one would die and there would be another one. But when you turn to the New Testament, you don't find any example of us needing another priest because we have, as Hebrew 4 says, a great high priest and his name is Jesus Christ and we don't ever need another one. That's who we pray to, amen. That's who mediates between us and God. That is the one we confess to. There is one bridge. That's really the point of Hebrews 7. The point of Hebrews 7 is, is to remind us that Jesus is our all-sufficient high priest. Jesus is our all-sufficient bridge. Now, you're going to, to think maybe some of this in a minute as we read Hebrews 7. But I certainly, as I was studying this chapter and reading it, I just began to wonder why we needed 28 verses on the priesthood 
and what is really the practical application for this. And so I'm trying to think about this. Like, how do we apply 28 verses on the priesthood to the church? And I realized the more I studied it, that the reason this is so intensely practical, listen, for you today, and the reason you desperately need to know this, listen to me, is because every single thing you need is on the other side of that bridge. Everything. Every emotional need, every physical need, every spiritual need, every relational need, every desire for hope, every cure for sin and anxiety and worry and stress, every bit of it is found in the presence of God. And the only way you're getting it is across that bridge. So if you don't understand the bridge, if you don't understand the priesthood and the way in which God has sent Jesus Christ as our great high priest, you will never get access to everything you need most. For that reason, there may be nothing more practical today than knowing how to get to the other side through a great high priest. Hebrews 7 is all about building our confidence in Jesus as an all-sufficient and sturdy bridge. By all sufficient, I mean that you don't need another priest. He is everything that you need. He is sufficient to be the one to get you into the presence of God, to find everything you need. And by sturdy, I mean that there is no possible way in which Jesus will ever fail you. You desperately need this kind of confidence. And so what this chapter does is it builds a case for us. I really do feel a little bit like it's a courtroom and it's building a case and it does so with a couple of paragraphs and then a final paragraph that really builds the case and it all ends up in a verdict that I believe is going to be seen in one simple verse that will show you the reason you need to know about this case is because you need that verdict. And it's gonna give you a new and a fresh confidence in Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient priest. So I'm gonna take it a paragraph by time. I'm gonna read it and explain it as we build this case. So if you're there in Hebrews 7, say amen. The first paragraph is verses one through 10. It says, for this Melchizedek, because we had just learned in the end of chapter six that Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Verse 4. See how great this man was, talking about Melchizedek, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descendants from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, 
paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now I know that doesn't need any explanation, right? I know that's perfectly clear in your mind, but just in case there might need to be a little explanation, let me give you a few thoughts. There is one point to all of those verses, all right? Verses one through 10, the author is building this case and the first point he wants to make is this. Listen, Melchizedek was a great priest. As a matter of fact, he's gonna make the case that he was the greatest priest of the Old Testament. So building a case, this has to be established first. Melchizedek was a great priest. Now the author takes us back to the first place in which Melchizedek is mentioned only twice in the Old Testament. And the first place is in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. There's only three verses in all of Genesis 14 about this rather mysterious man. It tells us the story about how Abraham went to rescue his nephew Lot because his nephew Lot had been in a battle and had been taken hostage which, uh, with his family and a bunch of others. So Abraham assembled some others and they went and defeated these kings and rescued Lot and took a great spoil with them as they defeated these kings with the help of the Lord. And so here's Abraham coming back from this massive battle with all these spoils and he's got his nephew and all of his family members who have come who he's rescued and he meets there this man, Melchizedek. It only tells us four things about him in Genesis 14. It tells us his name. It tells us he was a priest and a king. It tells us that he blessed Abraham and it tells us that Abraham then took 10% of all of his spoils and gave it to Melchizedek. And it's all four of those things that are here in Hebrews 7. So this is how the New Testament works. The New Testament goes to passages in the Old Testament that might be hard for us to understand. And they help us see them in light of Christ, in light of the new covenant. This is exactly what the author does here. We, we might have just glossed past Genesis 14 and never thought of anything. But the author of Hebrews says, no, this is, this is important. As a matter of fact, all of these details are important. First of all, he, he's a priest and a king. Showing that even in these early days, God desired to make a way for men and women and boys and girls to come to him. Melchizedek was a priest. He was a king. He was ruling on behalf of God. And he was mediating between man and God because God has always wanted people to come to him. It also tells us his name. Look at verse 2. It says, he is first, by translation of his name... King of righteousness. So Melchizedek means king of righteousness. But it also tells us in Genesis 14, he's the king of Salem, which means the king of peace. So all of a sudden we have this man who is a king on behalf of the Lord. He is a priest on behalf of the Lord. And he is a man known for his righteousness and his peace. He is ruling with righteousness and peace. He is mediating with righteousness and peace. But the most significant thing in our text is the tithe that was given to Melchizedek. Seven times in Hebrews 7, it talks about this tithe. It wouldn't really seem like a big deal to us in Genesis 14. Abraham comes, he meets Melchizedek. But then when he meets him, obviously understanding his superiority and his authority and honoring him as a king and a priest... Abraham takes 10% of all of the spoils of war and immediately gives it to Melchizedek. 
Now, Hebrews 7 says this is important for one reason. Because it shows us that Abraham viewed Melchizedek as a great priest. So it says in verse 2, to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. In verse 4, look. See how great this man was, which is the whole point of this little portion. See how great he was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. So it's obviously elevating the greatness of Melchizedek. If Abraham, the great patriarch, the patriarch of the Old Testament, if Abraham gave him 10%, obviously he saw this man as worthy of this kind of gift. He was superior in every way to Abraham, and Abraham felt subject to him. Matter of fact, it even says something interesting. Look at verse 9 and 10. It talks about the later priest who were known as the Levites. They came as descendants of Aaron. The Levites were the priest. But it says this, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So it's saying, well, if Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, that's really like these future priests born hundreds of years later. It's almost like they gave tithes to Melchizedek because they came from Abraham. All of this making one point, that everyone acknowledges that Melchizedek was a great priest, superior in every way. But the final thing it says is about this blessing that Melchizedek gave to Abraham. It's there in verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So listen, so Abraham comes back from war. He meets Melchizedek. They're standing there. Abraham doesn't bless Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses blesses Abraham. So right there establishing who is superior and who is inferior. He's saying it's clearly without, without any argument that the inferior is the one who gets blessed. So right as we see Abraham, this great patriarch, and we think there's nobody better than him in the Old Testament, he walks up, gives a tithe, and gets blessed by this great priest, Melchizedek. So all of this, helping us to understand the truth of verse 4, see how great this man was. Now what's even more interesting about this man is what we don't know about him. He has no genealogy, he has no story, we don't have any uh, record of his birth or his death, and that's the point of verse 3. Look at verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or days nor of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now listen, that's not saying that Melchizedek did not have a mother or father. It's not saying that he was never physically born and never died. What it's saying is this. It's looking back and interpreting this in light of Genesis 14. And in light of Genesis 14, we don't have any of this information. We don't know anything about his mom. We know nothing about his dad. We know nothing about his ancestors. We know nothing about his birth. We know nothing about his death, which for a high priest is incredibly unusual because priests always come from the same tribe, but not Melchizedek. Melchizedek does not come from the tribe of Levi and therefore is superior to him. This is what it's saying. It's saying that this is a bit of a mysterious figure. And the reason that's important is because he didn't go along this long line of those who were from Levi. And in that way, it says he resembles the son of God and continues a priest forever. He's what we call a type He's pointing us forward to something greater. 
He's obviously greater than Abraham. He's obviously greater than Levi. And he's pointing us to someone even greater that's going to come. He is a type of Jesus for us. And so here's the first part of the argument. Melchizedek was a great priest. Now the next little paragraph is going to expand upon that a little bit. Look at verses 11 through 22. If you're there, say amen. It says this, starting in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Meaning Jesus did not come from the tribe of Aaron, but from Melchizedek. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay, first paragraph, Melchizedek was great. Second paragraph we just read, but we need someone better. That's the point. That's the point of the second paragraph. Melchizedek was great. He was greater than Abraham, greater than all the other priests. He was great. The greatest patriarch, Abraham, received a blessing and gave a tithe. He was great. Paragraph two, we need something better. He's not good enough. Look at verse 11. If perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, why would we need another priest? Why would Jesus come? in the order of Melchizedek, if we had already gotten everything we need from the Old Testament priest, because we didn't get everything we need. When it says perfection there, it means completion. That the old covenant with its old priest and the old law could not make us perfect. It could not make us holy. It could not make us righteous. We needed something more. We come to the Old Testament and the end of the Old Testament and we see the greatness of the Old Covenant and all that it did for us. But the reality is it just pointed us to something greater and exposed our sin. It could not save us. The whole point of Romans 7 and 8 is the law can never save you. Hebrews 10.1 says this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The old covenant, the priest, the Old Testament law cannot make you perfect. It cannot make you righteous. It was deficient. So as a result of that, as great as Melchizedek was, 
we needed something more. And listen, we needed him not to come in the lineage of Levi, but in the lineage of Melchizedek. Why? Because if he came in the lineage of Levi, we've already established that Melchizedek was better. So you see why the first part's important? You've got to understand the greatness of this priest and then understand that the new priest, the greater priest that's coming was not from the tribe of Levi, but the tribe of Judah. He comes in the order of Melchizedek. He is greater. And he was promised to us a greater priest in the order of Melchizedek. The only other place he's mentioned is in Psalm 110 verse 4. Where the Lord says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's quoted twice there. So Melchizedek never mentioned after Genesis 14. We don't think anything of him. We come back to Psalm 110 and realize, wait a minute. This guy was significant. God is now promising that another priest is going to come who's going to be great like Melchizedek, but even greater. Because, look at what it says in verse 16. Because this one who becomes a priest will not become a priest, Jesus, on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent. This is what it's saying. Jesus isn't our great priest because he came from the line of uh, Aaron. No, it's because of this, because of the power of an indestructible life. Now listen, you're you're just kind of reading Hebrews 7 and you're getting all these words and everything seems confusing. And all of a sudden you get these two words, which if you have a, a pen, a pencil, a mascara, a lipstick, you circle the words indestructible life. Because then all it says is that the new high priest that we're going to receive in Jesus Christ, listen, is indestructible. Every other priest is gone. And every current priest of the Catholic Church will one day be gone. But there is one indestructible priest and his name is Jesus Christ. Which means this, he cannot be destroyed. He cannot fail. I see these commercials that promote something that's indestructible. You know, whether it's knives that can cut an engine block or some kind of metal shelves or some kind of new plastic that was created. These are indestructible. And my first thought is, well, yeah, they haven't met Josiah Smith, my five-year-old. I thought I would love to order one of those and just put it in a room with Josiah for a day and see who wins. I assure you, they're not indestructible. I've seen what that kid can do. Listen, it is establishing this confidence that this priest, Jesus Christ, is indestructible. And God has made an oath that one day an indestructible priest, a full and a final priest, is going to come. And I love the way in which Hebrews 6 says, Jesus is our sure and steady anchor. And Hebrews 7 says, and Jesus is also our indestructible priest. What an unbelievable thought. And that's exactly the point of verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Wouldn't you say so? The fact that he's indestructible, wouldn't that make him a better priest? And the fact that it says that when the law changes, the priest changes. And so Jesus has not just come as a better priest. He's come to bring a better covenant. Everything about him and everything about his new covenant is better. Why? Because he's indestructible. So first paragraph, Melchizedek was a great priest. Second paragraph, but we needed something better. Third paragraph, which we're about to read, Jesus is the priest we need. Look, as it says, starting in verse 23. 
The former priests were many in number. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he is always living to make intercession for them. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So building this case, which you desperately need in your heart today, because today you're gonna need something from God. You're gonna face a need today that only God can fill. An emotional need, a relational need, a spiritual need. You need something. And you need to know that there is an indestructible priest who has made a bridge that you can cross every moment of the day. You know, the only way you're going to know that and be willing to run to Jesus is if you have confidence in who this priest is. And so that's what is happening in this last paragraph. It is saying, how do we know that he's an all-sufficient, indestructible, secure priest? The reason is this. It tells us that, first of all, he is a permanent priest. He's a permanent priest. Write that down. We've kind of already established that by the word indestructible. He's a permanent priest. Look, look at what it says in verse 24. It says, he holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he continues forever. You can't destroy him. There will never be an end to Jesus Christ. So he is permanently in this role. You don't need another one. There, there's already a priest in the role of priesthood. You don't need another one. He's always going to be the one because he lives forever. He's indestructible. He continues forever. There's one mediator. His name is Jesus Christ. Not only is he the permanent priest, he's the perfect priest. Verses 26 and 27. He's holy and innocent. He's unstained. He's separate from sinners. This is the end of Hebrews 4, which tells us we have a high priest who understands what it's like to live as a human being in a broken world because he came and experienced every temptation you have experienced, yet without sin. And there's two parts of that that are great news. First of all, because he did not sin, he is holy and pure and unstained by the world, which means his motives is, are pure, his heart is pure, his love is pure, his grace is pure, his mercy is pure. But it's good news because there is no need that you have that he does not understand. He feels, he loves, he cares, he understands what it's like to go through the things you're going through and he longs for you to come to him to receive everything you need because he's not only permanent, he's perfect. You don't need anyone else to go to but Jesus Christ. But lastly, it says he's also a preeminent priest. It says that he is exalted above the heavens. So what this text does is it exalts Melchizedek but then it says, yeah, he was great, but there's one way exalted over him. 
Because Philippians 2.9 says this, because of Jesus' humility and death and burial and resurrection, he has been highly exalted. He has been given the name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has been highly exalted because of what he has done. And he is most exalted because he is not only a priest, he is a priest who was the very son of God, verse 28. He has been appointed not because his lineage from Aaron, but because of his relationship with God, the Father. God is not simply trying to grow a church. He is building a family. Hebrews 2.10, Jesus came to bring many sons to glory. So all of a sudden it helps us understand this emotional connection that God wants to make you his child. So Melchizedek was great, but he wasn't good enough. We needed an indestructible priest who was permanent who is perfect, who is preeminent, and his name is Jesus Christ. The thing that was interesting to me as I was thinking about this chapter is being reminded that the author is writing to a suffering church. Stay with me just a few more minutes. A suffering church. I mean, these are people real life, daily suffering. Read the end of Hebrews 10. They are losing their property for Jesus Christ. They are being imprisoned for Jesus Christ. Like constant, daily, intense, deep, heavy suffering And the author of Hebrews has an opportunity to encourage them in their suffering. And if you've ever thought about what could I say to someone who's really suffering, I'm sure the first thing that came to your mind is I had to give them a good lecture on priesthood. Like that's comforting, isn't it? How about 28 verses on Old Testament priests? I've never written a sympathy card and wrote at the bottom Hebrews 7. Just immerse yourself in the Levitical order. Think more about Melchizedek. It doesn't seem to make sense except for the fact that the author is building a case, helping us understand the way in which these priests work, that they exist to make a bridge to God, that everything you need is there, and that the one who is that bridge is in fact the perfect, permanent, preeminent Jesus Christ, all to help us understand the life-changing practical truth of verse 25. So I would say everything is building a case to get us to understand this one verse. And because it says the word consequently. Okay? So because Jesus is greater than Melchizedek, because he is indestructible, because he is the permanent, preeminent, perfect priest, because of that, what does that mean for you today? All of it is revolving around these two present active verbs, meaning there's something that's being done by someone else for us on a constant basis It says, because of this, he is able, because of who he is, which you wouldn't have known without the beginning of the chapter, to save us to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Save and intercession. Present active verb, something that is continually being done by another person on our behalf. So the great verdict of this text is this, listen. The great verdict is based upon who Jesus is, you can be confident that Jesus is always saving you. He's always saving you. He saves you to the uttermost. And what I love is how it tells us in verse 11 that the old covenant could not complete the work that God wanted to do in us. But Jesus is able to bring this to completion. That's exactly what that word uttermost means. He is able to complete something to absolutely, totally, and completely save us. Meaning, 
Jesus does not leave us to ourselves. Jesus is not requiring that we continue to exert all kind of effort in hopes that we might someday get to heaven. He is saying, this is not about you. This is about his indestructible life. And if he's indestructible and you've been united with him by faith, you're indestructible too. That's Romans 8. You are indestructible. Nothing can touch you without going through the hands of Jesus Christ first. And he is saving you. Not because of your consistent effort, but because he has promised that he will continue to save you until that salvation is complete. Means that there is no one in this room he is unable to save. There is no one in your family he is unable to save. And there is no sin or no temptation that he is unable to deliver you from because he is, un he is able to save you completely. And he continues day by day to save us from a thousand things. He continues to save us. He is an indestructible priest that cannot fail. But not only does he always save us, he's always praying for us. Look at that last phrase there. This is the last point, but look at that phrase. He always lives to make intercession for them. It is Jesus' constant and unwavering purpose. Listen, constant and unwavering purpose and desire to pray for you. Do you realize this? There are a thousand things that no one else knows but you. Jesus knows them and he's praying about them. And let me tell you something. Have you ever gotten on your knees to pray and you didn't know what to pray because you don't know what you need? And frankly, you don't even know yourself that well. You know you need something, but you couldn't put words to it if your life depended on it. Jesus knows exactly what that is and he's praying for it for you. He lives to pray for you. Always lives to make intercession. A few months ago, I had a, a very dear friend come to me and say that he felt as if the Lord had called him to pray for me as one of his chief assignments in this stage of his life. It's hard to imagine anything more humbling than that. To think that there's someone who gets on his knees every day and prays for me. What an unbelievable thought. And then to think that to a greater degree, an infinitely greater degree, Jesus Christ by name knows you and is bringing you before the Father, groaning with, with words that you, you can't even come up with in order to take your request to God the Father. He lives to make intercession for you, the big things, the small things, the sins, the habits, the struggles, the pains, the past, the future, the fear, the problems, all of them going to the throne of God. Why? Because Jesus is praying for you. He's always saving you and he's always praying for you. And there's only one thing that God's calling you to do. Look at what it says there at the end of verse 19. We'll close with this. We have a better hope, Jesus, who is introduced through which we draw near to God. That's the bridge. So we, we draw near to God and then look at verse 25, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost and he lives to intercede for them. Who? Who's them? Those who draw near to God through him. Another present tense active verb, meaning that 
This is a call to continually to draw near to God. And as we continue to draw near to God, James 4, 8, we continue to experience the salvation of God and the intercession of God, which means that in all of this, you have one job to do, and that's to just to stay close to Jesus. You can't save yourself. You can't deliver yourself. You can't solve all your problems, but Jesus can. And your one job is to get close to Jesus. That's it. I just love in a text that's this complicated with all of this stuff being said. At the end of it, it just says this. You have one thing to do. Go to God through Jesus every day, every moment, and watch him do for you what you could never do for yourself. That's it. You just keep drawing near to Jesus. And this morning, for the very first time, some of you need to do that. Some of you have never come to the other side by trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. You have never made that commitment. I'm going to give my life to Jesus and cross that bridge. You need to do that today. Some of you have some incredible needs that you're bearing yourself and trying to figure out. And what the Lord is saying to you this morning is, listen, leave that to me. You draw near. The reason we give an invitation at the end of every Sunday service is because you're going to walk out of here and be bombarded with a thousand other things. And we want to say, you know what? Right now, draw near to Jesus. Right now, bring it to Jesus. Right now, get on your knees with Jesus. And as you draw near to him, you will watch as he always saves you and always continues to pray for you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.